Hello, this is Leslie Garthler Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. In this episode, I speak with Professor Brian Garner about his new book, Garner's Guidelines for Drafting and Editing Contracts, published by West Academic. Garner is the authority on legal writing. He is a lawyer and teacher who has written more than two dozen books about English usage and style and advocacy. He also wrote two books with Justice Antonin Scalia. Students really make it through law school without the benefit of one of Professor Garner's books, or at least Black's Law Dictionary, of which he's editor-in-chief. In this episode, we discuss some of the ins and outs of contracting, and as a contract professor, I even come to a big epiphany that will change how I teach the class. And toward the end of our discussion, Professor Garner shares writing tips for success that are important for every law student. If you're listening to Law to Fact, chances are at some point you'll be taking the bar exam. Well, getting ready for the bar exam means you'll need to choose the study program that's right for you. Kaplan Bar Review will get you ready to take on test day with confidence by offering $100 off live and on-demand bar review with offer code LESLIE100. Visit www.kaplanbarreview.com today to sign up. Here's my conversation with Brian Garner. Thank you so much for joining me. It's an honor to have you, and I'm delighted to have the chance to speak with you today about your new book, Garner's Guidelines of Drafting and Editing Contracts, which is published by West Academic. Um, Before we begin, I do want to say again thank you and, and tell my listeners, particularly my law student listeners, that so many of your books, Black's Law Dictionary, of which you're the editor-in-chief, The Red Book, which is the Manual on Legal Style and Legal Writing in Plain English, which I continually recommend and have given to so many of my students as gifts, are really fundamental to good writing, and more importantly, good lawyering. Um, and that leads me to my first question, which is, how, if at all, is contract writing different from ordinary prose? Well, thank you for your generous comments. Um, contracts, you know, they're a different animal. I, I do think lawyers and, and law students need to learn to enjoy writing because it is a literary profession. And of course, some legal writing has uh, elements in common with uh, general expository prose. But we do sort of feel instinctively that when we're drafting contracts, we're doing something different from what um, brief writers are doing what litigators do in motion practice, etc. And and that is true. Um, most expository prose of a persuasive kind or analytical kind is about past events. Uh, that's certainly true of briefs and it's true of memos and the like, most letters. Um, but contracts are about future events. And they, they are the core guidance, the guiding texts for what's going to happen uh, either in a transaction or during a relationship. And so it's about future events. And it, instead of describing things that have happened, normally uh, contracts are divvying up responsibilities in the future. So it, it's, it's fundamentally a different enterprise. You also say in your book that contract drafting is akin to private legislation. So, um, which is actually, as a contracts professor, makes total sense. But I'm wondering if you could kind of explain that for our listeners, what you mean well, by legisla- that. Well, legislation like contracts, again, it deals with, with future events. And it's the kind of writing, you know, it's writing rules. And most people have not had a lot of experience writing rules. Children will sometimes write rules of a club or something like that. 
uh, no more than three people in the clubhouse at a time, et cetera. I don't right. know what they might come up with. <laughs> uh, yeah. you're, writing, you're writing rules um, that two parties have to abide by. So I think private legislation is a very good um, way of describing it. And what you want to do is express rights and duties very clearly, unmistakably, because when a relationship um, sours, one party will have a vested interest in saying that these words may not mean exactly what the other side was hoping that they meant. And so it's never enough to achieve just clarity in in contract drafting or legislation. You want you you need to achieve unmistakability. That's unmistakability is a great way to talk about it. So I guess and maybe I should have started with this question. When you it's really a twofold question. One is what prompted you to write this type of book? And secondly, who is your audience? Because I, I have to be honest, I got it thinking it was going to be for law students, but the truth is it's really for just anyone who wants to write a legal document, in my opinion. I, you know, it's, 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 it just walks you through so clearly every step of the contract process. So I'm wondering kind of who your muses were, who you were writing this for. Well, yeah, I've been teaching contract drafting for about 30 years now, mostly to practicing lawyers. I also teach at law schools. I um, teach right now at two schools, the University of Texas and Southern Methodist University. Mm -hmm. And so it it is partly for law students, but my main audience with this particular book is um, the the practicing bar. But I also think law students need to understand, you know, how it's done and what the best practices are. But I will tell you, Leslie, you're the first to know uh, that this same book is coming out um, as a course book, and uh, it's going to be co- called Garner's Course Book for Drafting and Editing Contracts. It's going to be about 150 pages longer, mm-hmm. Wow! and it will have exercises interspersed throughout. And so after a, a span of uh, black letter principles, and you know, with my books, I like to write black letter principles that are complete propositions and then an explanation and then illustrations. Right. That's, that's the way I do the winning brief, the way legal writing plain English is done. Almost all my books are in that format. And I think it's a very handy format for the student. Anybody who wants to know um, how do I do this, how do I do that. Right, because you, you, you do the not this, but this side, right? I love that. Yeah, That's right. And, and you need real, real examples. So all the examples in um, these guidelines are, are actual examples. Many of them, in fact, come from published form books, which I think is an interesting uh, sort of uh, innovative aspect of, of this book. But... The course book is going to have be about 150 pages longer with um, exercises that students can complete. And then I will have a teacher's manual, which will be very difficult to get your hands on. Mm-hmm. Only, only law school professors will be able to have it, but it will have my solutions to all the, the problems. And I think that's going to be very useful for students. So. You know, law students can learn either from guidelines or if they want to practice 
they can they can have the exercises um, that accompany uh, the book. It, it, it'll be a, essentially a differently titled book, but the the meat of it will be the same plus exercises. Well, that's wonderful. Well, I'm your target audience as a law professor, and I, I teach first year contracts, and then I teach sales and. Um, you know, one of the, the problems is that we talk about contracts, but we really don't get to the meat of contract drafting until those upper-level courses. And students, when they come to law school, just like they don't know what a tort is, you know, they really want to get their hands on a contract rather than interpreting, you know, the parole evidence rule or, you know, mistake and all of that stuff. So I think kind of even if you use part of this book, and I'm, I'm thinking out loud, starting my semester with a contract drafting exercise might give them kind of some practical experience before they worry about the theoretical. I think that's right. You know, when it comes to skills, people need hands-on practice. And, you know, if you're trying to teach somebody to play the clarinet, uh, you can't do it without a clarinet. you got to have the person, you know, play the instrument and if you're trying to teach somebody how to how to play golf you need some golf clubs that the person can actually handle and, and work with and the same is true with contracts so it is a funny thing about the way we teach contracts in substantive courses that some people call them doctrinal courses but we you learn doctrine without actually seeing a contract it's, it's fascinating you know I have been teaching contracts for 10 years and I don't know if I should say this publicly, but I never really thought about how ludicrous it is to teach contract law without first showing them a real contract. Well, <laughs> my epiphany. And it took me it took me many years uh, after law school before I realized that is a strange thing. Yeah. But most most contracts students never actually see a full contract at all. Imagine if medical schools taught human anatomy. But you never actually see a human body. All you ever see is a bit of a spleen over here or a bit of a bladder over there. Right. It's very interesting. Right. Um, you know, as a contract professor, as one of the things I try to impress about my to my students is that you can't say I will sell you 100 apples because what an apple means to me may be very different than what an apple means to you. So... Um, which actually is, is a question that you kind of, uh, that I had in reading your book, you addressed it a little bit. Um, this is really a personal question I have for you, which is how do you feel about the use of adjectives in contract writing? But I'm wondering what you, what you think about adjectives like extra large or elderly or that kind of thing. Well, if it's a vague adjective like elderly and you haven't defined what elderly means, uh, that's not good. Um, sometimes best efforts, uh, reasonable efforts. I mean, sometimes we can't escape adjectives. I do think it's better not to say within a reasonable time. Mm -hmm. the, UC, the UCC is full of references to a reasonable time. But in a contract, you're better off saying within, within seven days or eight days, or better to say by 5 p.m. on such and such a date. That's not always possible either, but it's better to give a time certain than some sort of vague reference to a reasonable time, which really is kind of predicting or even causing uh, litigation. And one thing that a good contract drafter does is to quell litigation. 
to forestall litigation. You don't want arguments over things that can be solved at the front end. And and that kind of goes back to your concept of private legislation, which is that the contract is really the rules by which both parties must live by. And so um, the more specific they are, the more we know what the rules are. And in right. a, you That's know right, right? In, in a way too like as as, you, as I'm reading through your book and I'm thinking about the specificity with which you um, articulate everything from font you know size to font use and everything like that the more specific the less room there is for interpretation and if the parties aren't challenged by the interpretation then they're not going to bring it to the courts to interpret it themselves That's right um you, you you don't want uh, to do anything that would uh, predictably cause litigation. Because litigation is a nightmare for corporate parties, for parties in the contract. I mean, it, it means you're involved in a major headache. Right. And if you can solve that and, and create certainty at, at the front end, you're going to be uh, far better off. And, and so let me talk to you about the front end, because you begin your book with this idea of a set of fundamental principles, and one of the principles that you cite is the idea of establishing efficient protocols for working with counterparties. And I thought that was such a brilliant idea, but but not one necessarily that comes from this idea of legal drafting, per se. So I'm wondering um, why that's so important as a fundamental principle in a book that's really focusing on how to draft a contract? Well, because it's a very important part of the process. I'm involved in a, a rules project right now where we're just establishing protocols on how drafts are going to be exchanged between those who are uh, redrafting the rules and the substantive uh, committee that's reviewing it. And are, they, are the changes going to be redlined, for example? So the process of writing or the process of exchanging drafts in a contract uh, will fundamentally affect how the contract ends up reading. And if you don't have trust with counterparties as drafts go back and forth about the extent to which changes have been made, um, now, then that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Partly how we do that is you can do compare docs and and there are various uh, programs that you can run the document through to find out how much has been changed. But it is important because contracts are collaborative between counterparties and, and, you know, some people say adversaries. I don't think it's best to think of a counterparty in a contract as being an adversary, more likely a potential adversary, but we are collaborating on the draft and so it's very important to, um, to have a process in place by which uh, the, draft, the final draft will be arrived at. So one of the things that is really important and students focus on a lot is this idea of merger clauses, or what they can be called integration clauses or standard provisions, where if they occur in the document, it means that the actual contract is one that is not subject to prior oral or prior written and contemporaneous oral statements. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on drafting the kind of provision that will keep out parole evidence? Well, 
I think it's good to have a standard form merger clause, and I've given one in that section toward the end of the first division of the book on uh, have a standard set of provisions that you put into every contract. Mm -hmm. So basically, it's interesting because in your book you talk about housekeeping clauses and one of them is this idea of what a merger clause and you keep it very brief. You say this agreement represents the entire agreement between the parties. It cannot be changed except by written agreement signed by the parties. That's sufficient, right, to keep our parole evidence. I believe it is. Yeah, that's great. What are some of the biggest mistakes you think people make when they're drafting con uh, contracts? Unthinkingly relying on forms, things that have been signed before, and assuming that a lot of thought went into it before, and and if we used it before, it's good enough now. And the old mindset, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, and I think a lot of transactional lawyers or just any lawyer who's involved in doing transactions, because every lawyer needs to know how to draft a contract. The litigators do settlement agreements. Right. Every lawyer has to draft contracts at some point. Criminal attorneys I, do plea agreements. That's right. So assuming that your predecessors have done well and that you can rely on something that was signed before, I think leads to a very uncritical mindset and poor drafting uh, because m actually most forms that we inherit part of the things that I, one of the things I'm trying to prove with my not this but this columns you see these before and after contrasts yeah. Yeah. which are mostly pretty tremendous contrasts mm -hmm. is to show that that the existing forms are generally quite poor. That's actually, that's very good advice. I, you know what, I'm going to draw the analogy to students preparing for exams because a lot of students will get former students' outlines. And that's like, what, and that's one of the biggest mistakes you can make because you're not learning and starting from scratch for yourself. So it's the same principle as writing a contract. You should start from scratch. That's, that's great advice. And, you know, it's not bad to look at forms, but I'm trying to teach lawyers and law students to be very skeptical of expression in forms. I think you. I think it's it's fine to be respectful of um, of the substance, the kinds of things that have been dealt with. I, I think you need to look at contracts for ideas. But I try to teach people to be very wary of the expression of those ideas. And, and, and that gets into syntax, right? Because you, you talk about syntax in the book and the importance of syntax. That's right. The, the order in which you express uh, ideas within a sentence, it's a, it's a critical thing for lawyers to, to learn. So can you give an example of that? Well, so there's a section on conditions, how to express conditions, how to express exceptions. If the exception or condition is very short, then you can put it first. But if, if you have many exceptions or many conditions, um, you can't encumber the beginning of the sentence with all that stuff before getting to the meat of the sentence. So in that case, you need to flip-flop the, uh, get to the subject and verb right up front and then express the conditions or exceptions at the end. Mm -hmm. But this is a judgment call based on how how complicated is the sentence and how many conditions or exceptions are there? Got it. 
So, you know, it's interesting because as you're speaking, I'm thinking that there's a lot of psychology that goes into contract drafting. And, and, and again, I know we've touched on this before, but this whole idea of the size font to use and the size and the type of, type of font to use and the syntax that you use and avoiding passive voice and all of that stuff. And so what do you, as a contract drafter, what are your goals um, in terms of producing a document for your opponent? Well, I, I think readability is a, is a primary goal. It's not a secondary goal, it's a primary goal. Because if you make a readable contract, you're going to be able to understand the contract better. The other side will be able to understand, understand the contract better. And so it's not enough uh, just to be sure that you reach a certain result if it's a struggle to read it. The more a contract is a struggle to read, the more likely you are that the parties will depart from what the contract specifies and will get into some trouble and then go to litigators who can make a lot more hay out of unclarity than they can out of clarity. Uh, So precision has traditionally been considered the most important thing. Precision is important, but readability is equally important. I wouldn't say almost as important, it's equally important. Mm -hmm. Because precision is often illusory if if the document is not readable. And you can achieve precision and readability at the same time. It just takes a lot more skill than lawyers have traditionally had. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and that's where your books become and are so important is because they really do help Lawyers hone their their writing skills, and and by the way, and this is important. I don't think it's ever too late to learn how to write. I go back and look at your books sometimes. You know, I've been you know writing and teaching for years and years and years. So these are good reference books as much as they are kind of good uh, how to manuals. Well, thank you. I I try to make all my books uh, interesting to read, even Black Law Dictionary. I mean, I don't want boring pages in Black's Law Dictionary. I want I want people to dip in and then to find themselves uh, 15 minutes later thinking, hey, wait a second, what was I originally looking up? Because they find so many interesting things. Mm-hmm. Same with legal usage, uh, same with legal writing in plain English, and I hope with this book. So if you just dip in to browse a little bit uh, and you see, oh, this is an interesting technique, and then you turn a couple of pages, and before you know it, you, you're 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 um, engrossed in the book. Yes, yeah. that's, that's what I'm aiming for. And, and it is it's readable. And by the way, thank you because the font is actually fabulous <laughs> for some, for strained eyes. So um, thank it, you. So um, Brian, I would be remiss if I didn't take advantage of having you on the phone. And I'm just wondering, switching gears for just a moment. Because a lot of my listeners are law students, could you just shoot off a couple writing tips, maybe your top three favorite writing tips that you would share with them? Well, be sure not to give up your some degree of extracurricular reading. Uh, Read 15 minutes a day, good nonfiction writing, think about technique. Look, if you're a law student, you're suddenly plunged into this world of, of reading a lot of alien stuff and a lot of it is not very well written and if you're not careful um, 
a lot of these bad habits that you're reading in old cases will sort of creep into your style. And to some degree, you're going to try to ape that because you're trying so hard to acquire this new language. It's almost inevitable. But any law student uh, is going to see his or her writing skills falter at the beginning, get worse. Mm -hmm. You will get worse almost any time you're thrust into a new discipline. So I just encourage you, especially if you're entering this profession with some literary zest and interest, you know, don't lose it. Uh, keep, keep thinking about technique. Now, one of the things that you're learning to do as a law student is to skim, skim just to get the, the gist of, of whatever the case is or what the doctrine, the crucial fact. And you've got to learn to, to read quickly and efficiently. But don't forget to read frequently for technique and pay attention to, to techniques that you admire and things that you don't admire. And if you are a more attentive reader, you're going to be a better writer. Uh, beyond that, just you know, make mental notes about what you like and what you don't like as a reader. And then experiment with the things that you do like um, when it comes time for you to write out anything, uh, you're going for clarity. You're trying to explain problems in a way that anybody can understand. Your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister. And if you can do that and handle words well, you're going to do very well. The other thing to remember is this is a profession of words. Our only tools are words. Law is a literary profession. And so you want to be comfortable with handling words and ideas. And a really good writer is somebody who has first-rate ideas married with uh, first-rate expression. But you must have both, good ideas and good expression. And just start and keep your critical hat on. Keep thinking about what, what works well and what doesn't work well in the stuff that you're reading. Wow, that's great words, great advice. Um, well, thank you again for joining me. Again, the book we're talking about today is Garner's Guideline for Drafting and Editing Contracts, which is published by West Academic. Anything else you want to add to the conversation? Just that it's a pleasure talking to you, Leslie. <laughs> thank and, you. <laughs> uh, I wish all of your listeners well. Thank you very much. Well, it's really a treat for me to get to speak with you, and I so appreciate you giving us the time. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you. So that's my discussion with Brian Garner, author of Garner's Guidelines for Drafting and Editing Contracts, published by West Academic. Students, professors, keep an eye out for the law school edition of the book. Once again, thank you for listening. If you like us, we would appreciate you subscribing or rating us on any platform on which you listen to us. And as always, you can reach us at lawtofact at gmail.com or tweet us at lawtofact. Once again, a reminder that Kaplan Bar Review is offering you $100 off their live and on-demand bar review program. Just use Leslie 100 as your code when you sign on at www.kaplanbarreview.com. Thank you, as always, to www.bensound.com for music, and enjoy your day.